All right. Well, why don't you open your Bibles to Judges chapter 14? Look at I turned right there. That's pretty awesome, huh? Judges chapter 14 as we continue our trek through the Old Testament and um, we started with Samson last week. Well, introduced him and probably won't finish him this week. We'll look at him, finish up the end next week, but let's go before the Lord and we'll start there in Judges chapter 14. Father, Again, as we gather together in your name, Lord, and just have your word open on our laps before us, Lord, we pray that you would do that great work that you're so faithful to do in our hearts and our lives, Lord, as you speak to us and you minister to us, and Lord, you love us and you have great plans for us and want to do great things in and through our lives, and well, Samson is a, just a real prime example of that. But it's also a telltale or a, a tale of um, freedom of choice. Uh, we can choose to follow your leading and your will and your plan for us, or we can choose to deviate from that. And we learn the important lessons of what happens when we, well, we go off course and we think it's going to be okay just doing whatever we want to do. And, well... We'll see at the end of Samson's life, it was pretty binding and grinding. Um, Lord, you're, you're good and your grace is wonderful. And we see him finishing, Lord, and pouring out his grace in his life. And we thank you for that as well, Lord. But help us to learn from all that you want to speak to us tonight, Lord, as you're so faithful to do. So move by your spirit, Father, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you might remember last time, remember Samson started out with um, advantages that really a, none of the other judges had. Remember, the, he, was, um, he came as a result of a promise. Remember, the angel of the Lord showed up to uh, his mom, Mrs. Manoah. His dad's name was Manoah. Her name was Mrs. Manoah because we don't know her name. But he, he showed up and said, hey, I know you haven't had any children. You're childless, but I'm going to give you a child as a result of a promise and I'm going to use him uh, to deliver my people uh, from the Philistines. And Miss Manoah, uh, he's going to be a Nazarite, not a Nazarene. Remember, Jesus was from Nazarene. This is a Nazarite vow. Remember on Wednesdays we've been going through that. We talked about that many moons ago. That you could dedicate yourself to the Lord for a period of time. The Lord didn't say how long, how short. Um, probably wasn't a real short thing because you had to do a number of things and uh, to, to, you know, to go through that. But you could dedicate yourself for a period of time, a month, uh, six months, a year. Uh, and, uh, you know, you just say, Lord, I want to dedicate this period of time in my life to, to you. And man, woman, it didn't matter. You could do that. There was a few things you had to do. Uh, some outward reminders that you were in this period of separation to the Lord. One of them was uh, don't go near anything dead, whether it's an animal or a person. Um, and the other was to stay away basically from, from alcohol and even uh, grapes or vineyards. Just to stay away from it all. Um, and uh, there were a couple other regulations that they had to do. Well, in Samson's case, he was going to be born... And have that vow, uh, he was going to be consecrated or dedicated or separated to the Lord his whole entire life. As a matter of fact, when Miss Manoah got pregnant, she was supposed to follow those same kind of Nazarite uh, things so that even the baby inside of her um, would be uh, from inception, if you would, uh, would be under this vow of the Nazarite. So again, um, we... We saw that, and we saw the great faith of his parents, I believe. And then at the end of chapter 13, we saw that the Spirit of God was starting to move in Samson's life. So off to a great start, but things will turn as we'll find out as we go through this. So let's look at verse 1 of Judges chapter 14. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, 
get her for me as a wife. Wasn't marriage so much simpler? <laughs> I saw her. She looked good to me. And uh, I want her. Now, just so you get a little idea of, of where we are in, in the country. Now, remember when they went to the promised lands, they divided up into these tribes or family groups. And every, or every, but the people could follow their lineage back to uh, these names of 12 sons of Jacob. Now, we're over here in Judah. This is the area that we're going to kind of focus on here. And um, this is kind of a, we showed this little map last time. This is the area of Judah and Benjamin, those other tribal areas, and Dan. And here's the coast, you know, these Gaza, Eshkelon, Ash, and Ashdod. This is where the Philistines were. This is where the Timnah was. This is where Samson's going to kind of start out, so you got a little idea. Uh, here's Jerusalem, if that gives you some idea where that is. So it's a little bit closer to the coast from Jerusalem. And, and these were pretty much where all these things are going to happen. He is looking to marry a woman of the daughter of uh, the Philistines, which is going to be down there at the bottom of the map. So why he was over in Philistine territory, we don't know. But it just seems like he saw this woman, and maybe we would say today, love at first sight. Maybe he just thought she was good looking. I don't know. We'll read about this. Let's, let's continue on. So he saw her, and he tells his parents, hey, I want to marry her. Well, mom and dad say this in verse 3. Then his father and his mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren? Or among all my people, that you must go and get a wife from these uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. You got to love Samson's parents because they remind him, Hey, Sam, you know, you're not thinking right. Um, you need to marry in the family. You, you need to stay... Uh, connected and get married to those that are that that you know are in the family in the family of God. Now, um, even in Deuteronomy, way back then, when Moses getting to, hey, you're going to go into this land and you're going to see these other people, and he warns them, don't get connected with them, don't you know start relationship with them, don't get into business with them, certainly don't marry them. Or give your children to marry them, or, or have your children marry them. You, you, you know, you need to stay away from that. And we get a, a similar warning in, in 2 Corinthians as well, chapter 6. You know, don't be unequally yoked. You, you don't mix the two. And um, it's not that they're um, uh, unloving people, it's not that they're not good parents, or they're good partners, or any of that. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's not we're better and you're not good. It all has to do with, um, listen, the most significant and most important thing in a believer's life is that, is Jesus, right? He is the center of our lives as Christians. You know, everything connected with the Lord is the, is the center of our lives. But if you connect with somebody, particularly in marriage, that's, that, that isn't, you know, um, it's never going to work out because their desires, their passion, their number one thing is going to be something other than that. And so the Lord warns us very clearly, don't be unequally yoked, whether it's in the New Testament or the Old Testament, it's the same principle. Now, you know, there's always going to be those things, you know, you become a believer later in life, you're married or something happens this way. You know, the Bible gives instruction for that, that we're supposed to stay married and supposed to be a good example to, to our spouses that aren't unbelievers. But, but we just don't start in that road. We just don't go down there. And the warning really is for us and to pass along to our, our children and those that we love and that we care about. Be careful. You don't fall in love with somebody you shouldn't. It's just an important thing. We've got to be careful we start giving our hearts to those things, it's just a matter of time before, you know, we fall in love and then you're, you know, you're in this really big pickle. And that seems what happened with Samson here. Um, you know, but Samson replies, what does it say, you know, at the end of verse 3? Well, you know, it was love at first sight. She's the one I want. 
I don't care about those other things. I don't really care what you say. I'm in love. And so that's all that matters. Let's keep this in mind because this is the slippery slope that Samson is going to find himself on. That will eventually, this kind of love and this passion and falling in love with with these women that he shouldn't be involved with is going to be his eventual fall, right? As we know the story of Samson and Delilah. Well, he gets the warning from his parents, but he ignores that. And then verse 4 says something really interesting. But his father and his mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Well, wait a minute. Weren't you just telling us that Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and and these verses in the Bible tell us about not doing that and getting falling in love, but yet it seems like here in verse 4, what? That, you know, uh, uh, the Lord was, was moving in this area. Listen, it's important to understand this because the truths that we just talked about, not being unequally yoked, not going outside the family and marriage, so to speak, and, and incorporating all those, you know, unbelievers in our lives and you know whether it's in businesses or in deep friendships or certainly in in marriage and relationships those truths still stand and what the lord is saying here even in in samson's disobedience i'm gonna have my sovereign plan come to pass in other words even though samson's disobeying me I, I'm, gonna, I'm still going to use him in what I promised his parents, that he was going to be the deliverer or uh, put them out from underneath the, the bondage of the Philistines, or at least begin to do that. Now, remember, we read at the end of verse 13, and I said in the beginning, remember the Spirit of God, if you want to just look up um, verse 25 of chapter 13, the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. You see, the Spirit of God is already moving in him, but Samson had a choice. Was he going to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, which was moving in his life, as we just read in, in, in chapter 13, verse 25 there? But again, he has that ability to do what he should be doing, but he's choosing not to do that. And what that tells us is God can even can and does use the evil of man to serve his purposes at times, or the rebellion of man to serve his purposes. And we'll see that throughout Scripture. He'll use like the Babylonians, remember, when they'll come in and, and destroy the nation because of their sin, God will use them. He'll call them my servants, even though they don't know nothing about the Lord. They worship all sorts of other crazy stuff, and yet God will use those to serve his purposes. And Samson is not going to derail that. God's still going to continue to do what he promised through Samson, even though Samson isn't choosing to follow him. And it's just, again, God's plan. He's going to have it come to pass. And uh, he's not condoning this, saying, yeah, that's okay, it's all right, I'm, going to, I'm doing something here. No, he's doing it in spite of what Samuel's doing. Kind of like what the Lord does with us, right? He uses us despite some of the choices we make at times, right? And uh, that's what he's doing here with Samson. Let's find out what happens. Verse 5. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and his mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came uh, came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Now, the first thing is, (laughs) what in the world is Samson doing in the vineyards? He is not supposed to be around vineyards. That was part of that Nazarite vow. He was supposed to stay away from grapes, of course, and then all the alcohol that usually they got from grapes, whether it's wine or other things. And he was even supposed to stay away from grapes and even stay away from vineyards. But where is he? He is in the middle of of a vineyard with grapes. And all of a sudden, this lion pops out of nowhere. 
And notice the, whole, the, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he takes it down single-handedly. As a matter of fact, it says, like tearing apart a young goat. You guys ever tear apart a young goat? No, me neither. I have no idea what that means, what that's like. Like tearing apart a young goat. That doesn't sound so happy to me anyway. I have no idea what that means, but the bottom line is, I guess a teeny little weak goat with those long legs or something, how you can kind of, you know, wreck them pretty easy, I guess. But this giant lion, uh, because of the, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him, this lion was no problem. Like some small little weakling animal, he was just able to... Uh, to take it down without, um, without any problem and barehanded. You know, we'll read about one of David's uh, mighty men later on, um, and he, it says that he, one day he, I don't know if he fell into a pit, I don't remember exactly, we, into, there was a pit he fell into and there was a lion in there. And the dude was in there with his lion, and it said I think he took his spear and was able to, to kill the lion before it got to him. Uh, which is pretty amazing in and of itself, right? But Samson didn't have anything, and the lion surprised him, and he, by the strength the Lord gave him, was able to just single-handedly just take down this lion like it was nothing. Again, just showing the Spirit come upon him in a marvelous way, giving him this superhuman strength. Well, verse 7, uh, so this is all that's happening is he's heading down to his wedding now, right? His parents are there. He goes into the vineyard for some reason. This lion comes out. This happens. He's going down to make arrangements. So verse 7, And then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. And after some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of the some of it in his hands, and went along eating. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So it seems like he goes down there, sets up the wedding plan, then he's coming back some time later to, to have the wedding, and he goes back into the vineyard again. Again, Samson, what are you doing? The Lord told you. You know, there's a few things you're not supposed to do. He's back there again. And for some reason, he goes over to the lion, and he sees the lion, and he sees a bunch of bees around there, or at least an old honeycomb, and he reaches into this dead lion and takes some honey to eat. All I can say is, yuck, <laughs> right? That sounds disgusting, eating something out of a rotten lion, but yuck. But again, you see the, 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 the pattern developing here. He went in the vineyard when he shouldn't. God gave him the grace, and he was able to defeat the lion. But he decides to go back there again, you know, marrying somebody he shouldn't. Goes back there again. He's not supposed to touch a dead animal either. And he's touching the dead animal, not only touching it, but he's eating what's inside of it. And what we see really here, and what the Lord, I think, is trying to picture for us, he's just disregarding his, call, his calling. He's just not... It's not that big deal to him. He's just like, oh, whatever, it's okay. I can still do this, Lord, and, and still be connected with you. That, that's the pattern we see here. But we also notice, even though he is doing this, the Lord is still using him. And, you know, the Holy Spirit's still coming, and the Spirit of the Lord is still coming upon him to give him this power. Even though he's kind of living in this rebellion or just disregarding at least some of the things in his calling. So they're eating this honey. They don't know where it's from. They're probably just happy to eat it. Samson knows what's going on, but didn't tell anybody. Maybe he doesn't want to hear him yelling at, hey, what are you doing in a vineyard? What are you touching a, a dead lion for? You're not supposed to do any of that. He doesn't tell anybody. But verse 10, so his father, and, um, so his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for the young men used to do so. So it's like, you know, a wedding party, if you would. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you, if you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast. Well, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall have 30 linen garments uh, then you shall give me, I'm sorry, 
30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. So as they're heading down there, you know, down with his parents to, to go get married, um, this wedding is so out of place that, that the family where he's, you know, the, of the daughter he's getting married to, they have to give Samuel some friends. They have to arrange friends for Samson because, well, he doesn't have any friends down there. And he doesn't have anybody. He's so disconnected. He's not in his own, uh, with his own people and his own family and his own, uh, you know, group, the Israelites and all that. He's so disconnected with them, and they realize he's just a foreigner, so they have to, if you would, just give him a bunch of friends. And then he decides to have this bet with these 30 guys that he doesn't know, that he just met, and he says, I'll I'll tell you this riddle, and if you can solve the riddle, then, you know, then you're going to give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. Now, that was very valuable. And if not, then, you know, I'll, I'll give them to you. That's hugely valuable. You got to think most people in that day, you know, they could afford one change of clothes. They, they probably had just have one set of clothes and that was it. That's all they had until it wore out to the, the nymph and then they get another one. So to have a, an extra change of clothes and a set of linen garments, you might remember the, um, the priests when they were serving in the tabernacle or in the temple, they, they wore linen garments. So, again, it was something special uh, for them. So linen, in other words, linen was harder to come by. So regular clothes, just regular clothes were expensive. And, and, and to have an extra set meant you were pretty well off. But to have a set of clothes and a set of linen garments meant you were pretty well off. So this was, a, this was very valuable. I mean, you think of it like, hey, I'll just give you one of my old T-shirts and a pair of jeans or whatever. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't like that in their day. This was worth a lot of money. And so he said, let's see if you can solve that. And, of course, they agree, and it goes on to say, verse 13, and they said to him, well, pose your riddle that we may hear it. Okay, we'll take that bet. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now, for three days, they could not explain the riddle. But it came to pass, verse 15 says, on the seventh day, that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? (laughs) So after three days, these guys are figuring out, there's no way I'm going to solve this crazy riddle, right? And and they realize this is going to cost us a lot of money. And these guys start threatening Samson's uh, would-be bride here that he's getting married to, and their threats are very real. Now, doesn't it give you a little bit of information of what kind of people the Philistines are? I mean, rather than lose a bet and cost them some money, they're threatening the very party they were invited to, the, the bride and, and her parents, that if you don't tell us we're going to burn you down, and we're going to burn your house down with you inside of it. You guys are all, all dead if you don't tell us. I mean, does that tell you what kind of people the Philistines are? Does it kind of remind us why God says don't get hooked up with people that don't know the Lord, don't spend time with them, don't, don't become their good friends, certainly don't marry them, don't get into business deals with them, because their standards are over here, the Lord's over here, and, and the warning goes out throughout Scripture in that way. And look what they find themselves around. Look what Samson would be marrying himself into, a bunch of people that were really to kill rather than lose a bet. Now, it was a considerable amount of money, but still, nonetheless, they're ready to kill over it. To tell you what kind of people they are. Well, can you imagine what this poor gal is feeling like about this time? Then Samson's wife, verse 16 says, wept on him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. And he said to her, look, I have not explained it to my mother. I'm sorry, to my father or my mother. So should I explain it to you? 
Now, Samson isn't good husband material either. <laughs> I haven't even told my parents. Why would I even tell you? Uh, you're getting married to her, Samson. Good reason, huh? But you can see, you know, he's not good husband material for that matter at this point either. And that's not the end of that. So she, she's doing that, and it continues. And now she had wept on him the seven days while the feast lasted. I mean, so she is nagging on him and nagging on him and whining and complaining and you don't love me and you don't care for me and, and all that manipulation, right? Now, I mean, there was some great push behind it, certainly. But it goes on to say, and it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. Verse 18, so the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not solved my riddle. <laughs> Samson just called his wife a heifer, okay? I just want you to know that in there. <laughs> Again, uh, not on the best term there. But he realized they would have never answered that riddle if they hadn't pressed her for it. And they pressed her for it. He was pressing, or she was pressing him, and he finally gave in. He couldn't take it anymore. So seven days, he tells her, and they tell, and then it goes on that way. So he said, man, if you didn't press her, you would have never figured it out. Verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and she went down I'm sorry, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of the clothing to those who had explained the riddle. And so his anger was aroused, and he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been the best man. Talk about a messed up chapter there in a lot of ways, huh? I, I mean, you, you know, he realizes that they, she got pressed. She just pressed and manipulated him until he finally gave in. He couldn't take it anymore. And she, when she told, found out, she told them. And then, you know, he went down and killed 30 guys. Can you imagine what the clothes were like when he was bringing it back? I mean, they had blood all over. I don't know. There must have been, that must have been a whole other deal there just to see all this. But... Again, you know, he was so mad that it seems like at the end of the wedding, he just didn't even go through with it or whatever. He just stormed back and left. And and so, you know, there's the father-in-law down there. Hey, we got people here. We had a wedding. We had a party. It was all done. I might as well just, why don't you marry this guy? <laughs> and, you know, she's married to the best man that they had, you know, supplied for Samson and one of the 30 guys there, and she gets married. And uh, he kind of stomps back to, to Israel, to, to Judah there. There's one thing I want to say before we, we leave this here. Um, you know, it has to do with manipulation. And again, you know, in the ladies' position here, um, uh, there's places that, you know, manipulation shouldn't go in marriage. Uh, even though you might get your way, uh, like in a case like this, the price you pay is way too high. You know, using manipulation and pressure to get what you want will never work out for a person. And I know typically, you know, it can be on both sexes, but typically, you know, women know how to do that. They can put the manipulation and the pressure on. Not that guys can't do it, because they can certainly do it. But, you know, when you have to manipulate and pressure somebody to get something, you're going to pay way too high of a price. You might get it, but man, the price you pay, like in this case, and we'll see as we go through the next chapter, is going to be way too high. What price are you willing to pay that you so want your will and your desire to happen that you'll manipulate and pressure to get what you want? And um, usually those kind of things just really blow up in a person's face. And we just need to be careful that we don't, demand our way so much that we're willing to manipulate and pressure to get what we think we absolutely have to have. It's just a good warning here given in the scripture as we'll see. Don't go there. There's some places we, we might be able to do it, we shouldn't do it.
We just shouldn't go there. And that's one of those things. Manipulation and pressure will never work out for you. So he storms off chapter 15 here. Um, he leaves at the end. She marries his best man, so to speak, that, that was provided for him. In verse 1, after a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. So it seems like some time went on. doesn't tell us how long. He cools off, and he returns with a gift, you know, a young goat, if you would, for a barbecue. Okay, I'm cooled down now. It seems like some time has gone on, maybe weeks or months. It doesn't really tell us, but it seems like there's another harvest coming in. So he's cooled down. He's going down there. Okay, I'll, you know, let's get my wife. Let's do this. Let's finish this up. Let's have a barbecue and let bygones be bygones, he thinks. So he's heading down there with a young goat, and he said, so he gets to his father-in-law's house where his wife was, let me go into my wife into a room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you had thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. What a great dad this Philistine was, huh? <laughs> Does that tell you anything about these guys? You know, I had the wedding prepared and you left. I figured you didn't want her. And so, hey, I just going to, it's already been paid for. The wedding, everything's here. Let's just, you know, I, I married her off. But you can have her sister. I mean, she's better looking anyway, isn't she? I mean, does it tell you something about these Philistine guys? Uh, not, not anything good here. Verse 3, and Samson said to them, well, this time... I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines. And it burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyard and olive groves. Now, we get a little bit more insight again about Samson here, who seems to be acting like, you know, a gang member mentality, right? He just wants retaliation. Oh, yeah, you took who was going to be my wife and you gave it to this guy, and now you want me to marry somebody else? Are you kidding me? And he just goes on this retaliation. You know, you read about in the paper, the gang members get mad because somebody did something to this gang, so they're going to get back, and, you know, they, they're just going to retaliate and all this kind of stuff. It's exactly what Samson's doing here. Now, just as a side note, some people have issue with this, saying, you know, wait a minute, he caught 300 foxes. Well, it can also be translated into jackals. So, you know, it could be more pack animals, and it doesn't say how long he took to catch them or how often he released them. It doesn't mean he did them all in one day at one time. Now, it could have been, but he could have done this over a period of days or weeks and caught them and let them go. But the idea was he would take a pair of these foxes or jackals. It could be translated either way, uh, coyote kind of things, if you would. And, you know, he takes them and he, you know, binds their tails to somehow, puts a torch there, and then, you know, they're going nuts. He lights it. Of course, he lets them go by the field, and they're going to go crazy trying to get untangled and away from the fire and all that. And so they spread the fire like crazy here throughout this till it's burning basically all their grain, their vineyards, their groves. I mean, there was a lot of destruction there in this retaliation. Let's remember the important lesson for us first off here is that, you know, we learn many places throughout Scripture that we're never called to retaliate. You know, people will say stuff about us and do stuff to us and accuse us of this and, and cause all this to happen. And, 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 and never once through the whole pages of Scripture are we to have this kind of attitude of, I'm going to get back at him. I'm going to get even. Oh, yeah, you did this. Well, I'm going to do this to you. You know, the greatest example we have of this is, is the Lord, right? He sent Jesus. When we were sinning, and, and he could have retaliated against our rebellion against him, but he sent, rather showed love by sending Jesus, and we received that love. We, you know, so, you know, that, that example set for us is, 
He could have retaliated those guys that were beating him and before he's crucifying him. And his last thing on the cross said, you guys will be in hell soon enough. <laughs> you know, he didn't say that. Father, forgive them, right? They don't know what they do. And there was this mercy and this grace poured out and the confidence that, Lord, you're going to even the books in the end. You know what's going on. Nothing's hidden from you, and I trust you. And when we display that sort of work through our life, and we don't have to get even or retaliate, you know, it's a great witness to people. I think David was one of the great guys in Scripture like that. Remember, uh, he had opportunity to kill Saul, who was trying to kill him, and he didn't even do anything wrong. I mean, he, he, he did everything right. He honored Saul. He did everything. And then Saul hated him, was so jealous of him, and the, to the point where he wanted to kill him. And, and when David had an opportunity to do something, he said, no, Lord, you'll take care of it in your time. He wouldn't do it. And it's a great witness for us. You know, again, we work through uh, allowing him not to, uh, uh, you know, to, to take care of those things that have happened. We can trust him with with those things. And we need to work inside the will of God and not of our own because that's what's going on. You know, he wasn't working inside of the will of God. You know, he was just doing it the way he saw fit. And we need to be careful of that. We don't retaliate and then we trust the Lord. Lord, you know what's going on. You're going to take care of me. I don't need to do that. So a great lesson that we learned here that Sam, I'm sorry, that Samson's just not really getting well, he's burned up their grain, he's burned up their olive branches, he's burned up or olive vineyards, the, I'm sorry, olive groves and the vineyards and all that. I mean, this is the big damage. And so you can imagine they're not happy. Verse 6, then the Philistines said, well, who has done this? And they answered and uh, said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etam. So, They see this fire. They see this incredible destruction that was going on, right? And everything was burned up, it says in, you know, verse 5 and then 6. And they're like, who has done this? They find out it's Samson has done this. Then they go inquire a little farther. And it says, oh, uh, by the way, uh, yeah, why did it cost? Oh, because I gave, you know, he's supposed to get married here. I gave him to his companion and I offered him his sister. didn't do it. And we can see how, the, how um, generous and loving the Philistines are. What did they do? Verse 6, they came up and burned her and her father with fire. I mean, they were fired up at what Samson did, and they just torched them. And then Samson sees this, and so he said, oh, you're going to do that? Now he one-ups them. I'm going to take care of you. And I'm going to take revenge on you. After that, I'll stop. And so it says, he attacked them, verse 8, with hip and thigh, with the great slaughter. Here's what uh, verse 8 says in the NIV. Maybe it's a little bit easier to understand it this way. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. So the, the, what he's saying here, what we're told here in scriptures is, that Samson, it wasn't like a regular battle, right? Okay, you go to war, people are going to die, it happens. But not only did he just kill them, but he was just slaughtered them viciously. So I'll let you picture that in your own mind. But the bottom line, it was a very brutal act. Not just killing in war, but it's something much more than that. So we can see, can I, can I just point that out to us? You know, the Lord wants us to trust him, right? The Lord says, I'm going to take care of it. You don't have to repay. I'm watching. I know what's going on. I'll take care of it. Samson takes matters in his own hands, and he starts destroying, and he's going to burn down them and get back at them in some way, and then they retaliate back, and then he's like, oh, yeah, let's bring it up another notch, and I'm going to slaughter them this way. 
you can just see how retaliation and revenge is just not of the Lord because it just never ends. And then, then, and then we'll see. Then they're going to one up it again, and, and it's just he's going to one up it again. It just, it's just not of the Lord. And so he does this and viciously kills him. And then again, it says at the end there that he head up, he went up after that. He went up to the cleft of the rock and eat him. Now back to our map here. He's back in Israel, and, and he heads back up here, and he's going to be up right about in this area where these mountains are. He's going to be up there. So Samson goes back to Judah, and again, um, notice one thing, uh, what's going on with him. He dwelt in the cleft of a rock in Eton. You get a little more insight about Samson here and how alone he was. You know, we haven't heard him being around anybody or with anybody other than his parents. And every time something happens, he's doing everything himself. Uh, rather than like the other judges, remember they rallied the people, the Lord used them, they got an army together. Well, Samson's this kind of a loner. He's kind of a one-man army for sure, um, but it's kind of sad now. After this, he, he's just kind of hiding out in a cave, if you would. We'll, we'll see that in a minute here. Just kind of um, how alone he was. It's kind of sad all the way through his life here. Well, verse 9, Now the Philistines went up and encamped in Judah, and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Well, why, uh, why have you come up against us? And so they answered, Well, we have come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he had done to us. Verse 11, Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is it you have? Uh, what is this you have done to us? And he said to them, "As they did to me, so I have done to them." But they said to him, "We have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hands of the Philistines." And then Samson said to them, "Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves." And so they spoke to him, saying, "No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hands." But we will, not, uh, we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Now, I, I don't know about you, but again, uh, after beating, the, you know, burning all their crops and doing all this and then beating them severely, the, the Philistines had really stirred up the, uh, uh, sorry, Samson had really st- stirred up the Philistines here. But it also gives us a picture of what was going on in the nation at the time. You know, the ones that are supposed to trust God and follow God and, you know, let the Lord be over them. Well, the, the Philistines, interesting, right? They don't go up and look for, for Samson because they're are rightly scared of the guy. So what they do is they go up next to that, you know, that this town over here, Lehi here, Lehi right there. And they kind of put their soldiers out there, and they're intimidating this group of people. They're saying to them, hey, uh, you know, like they're ready to battle with them and go to war with them. Now, remember, they were ruling over them, so they were threatening them. And uh, again, he has them all stirred up. And and these guys, um, again, send 3,000 men, a small army, to get Samson, one of their own. But... You notice that none of these 3,000 men or the people that are getting these 3,000 men of Judah, they're not ready to fight the enemy. You notice that? You know what they say to him? This is what they say. Samson, don't rock the boat. Don't cause us problems. You know, they could have said, hey, Samson, we're behind you, man. You, you got a victory down there, and you got another victory, and, man, they're afraid of you. That's why they're not coming up to you. They're coming up to us, and, you know, we're behind you. We'll, you, we'll follow you. You lead us. We can be free. But rather than fight, they wanted to appease the enemy, leaving Samson all alone. Isn't that pretty sad? I mean, these guys have been under oppression you know, by the enemy for years and years and years, and here they have some of the Lord's raising up, and rather than want to rally to his side to encourage him, they're like, hey, you're rocking the boat, and we're kind of, 
you know, uh, you know, don't cause problems for us. Rather than, hey, we're behind you, Samson. We're, we'll, we'll, you know, with, with you and, and us 3,000, doesn't matter how many of those Philistines are there. We'll take them easily. Just lead us. Rather than fight, they want to appease the enemy, leaving again Samson all alone to do it. But I guess something we have to ask ourselves as well, like how many times does the Lord want us to stand up for him but we shrink away and just want to appease rather than stand up for him. I mean, you know, I, I hate to think of how many times the Lord's kind of said to stand up or for him or, or speak for him or do this or address this and, you know, only to kind of shrink back a little bit. No, let's not cause problems. Let's, you know, make don't break up the peace here. Let's kind of appease everything and keep everything, you know, even keel. Let's not cause any waves here. We can see that kind of hard. It's just not from the Lord. We need to make a stand for the Lord. We should be. Have a, I mean, didn't Jesus, doesn't Jesus stand before the Father and, and you know, and, and say, this is my beloved child. I died for them. We have the accuser, Satan, standing there accusing us. And we have what? The mediator, Jesus, standing there on our behalf. You know, even saying, he who, you know, confesses me, I'll confess him before my father. These guys just want to appease, even though they're under terrible oppression from the enemy. Don't forget that. So they bind him up with ropes, and they, they take him out, and he says, just don't kill me. They take him out there, and they take him out to these Philistines, verse 14, and when he came to Lehi, the Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him, like, yeah, yeah, all right. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire. And his bonds broke loose from his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it and killed a thousand men with it. It's just kind of hard to imagine. I mean, he's out there. And just think of like, you know, sewing thread. You know, that big rope that was tied around him, new rope all bound up. He breaks it like thread, right? And I don't know, was there some dead donkey around there? And he grabs the, the, the jaw of it and just starts swinging and swinging and swinging against these soldiers. And he takes out a thousand of them with a bone. That would have probably been pretty awesome to see. <laughs> I don't know, you know, kind of destructive, but still kind of mad with a, you know, a thousand guys. He wipes them out, and this is what he says after he wiped them out, verse 16. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hands and called the place Ramoth-Lehi. So the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, gives him great victory with the bone, and then when the victory's there, who takes the credit? Samson does. Look, with the jawbone uh, of, uh, of a donkey, I slayed a thousand guys. And, you know, and then, you know, he said, he called the place uh, Ramoth-Lehi, which basically means jawbone heights. <laughs> if you want to put it this way. He said, yep, look at this. Look at that heap of dead guys. That was all me by a jawbone of a donkey. Look at that. Well, let's see what the Lord says next. Well, let's what the Lord has happened next. Verse 18. Then he became very thirsty, so he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given me this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of, uh, he, called, he called the name En-Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. So he comes, I have this great victory, look what I did with this bone, I'm going to call this jawbone heights. And then all of a sudden, you know, the Lord tempers this victory and says, uh, yeah, you're trying to take Samson, try to take credit, Samson. Oh, yeah, you killed a thousand guys, that's great. 
Um, let's see what it's like when you're a little thirsty here. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he's just like, I'm going to die if I don't get water. Lord, please don't let me die. And, you know, humility with this great defeat now, the Lord says, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's see how easily you're defeated by something real simple, by just being super thirsty. And what does Samson have to do? He has to call out and depend on the Lord to provide water, which he does. And then the end hakor just means spring of the caller. In other words, I called out and the Lord answered me. He named that spring. He named that, that water that came out miraculously that way. You know, the Lord has a great way, you know, when we start taking credit for stuff and thinking we're something better than we should and did this and did this. And the Lord says, listen, you know, it's time for a little humble pie, Samson. You know, who gave you that defeat? Was it you and your own strength that could take a thousand guys up with a bone? No. And let's, let's see. Let's put a little thirst on you here and see how that works. I'm, okay, Lord. Okay, uncle. You know, okay, okay. I, I'm dependent on you, Lord. And he does, and he should, and he gets, he gets it right back in there. And, and the last sentence we have, and he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Well, we're going to read his end next week, but let me just leave you with this. Um, it was a time of peace, and really, in this 20 years that we don't get much information, we got a few stories, but he defended Israel for 20 years. Now, we just got a couple of stories. We don't have much else. But, you know, when you think of Samson, we just can't only think of his sins because the Bible does tell us them, and we'll see them uh, here. We see, we'll see them next week. Uh, we'll see him, you know, turn it around at the end of his life. But remember, he was mentioned in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith as, as, a, as one who lived by faith in one of the giants of the faith in the book of Hebrews. So we can't forget that, even though the Bible kind of gives us the revealing and the picture of all that and shows us all this. But at the end of the day, you know, we just... I have to remember that God did write him up in Hebrews chapter 11 and give him uh, uh, and, and tell us that he was uh, one of the giants of faith. And so we want to keep that in the back of our minds as well. Well, let's go before the Lord and we'll finish this up next time. Father, again, we thank you for this time that um, we get to spend in your word looking at these things that you want to speak to us, Father, the reminders of things that we need to, to be reminded of and to learn from, Father. You give us examples in your word, and, and particularly in the Old Testament, good examples and bad examples, things we can learn from. We don't have to learn everything by experience. We're thankful that you put the experiences of others here that, well, we can take heed from and take warning of things not we shouldn't repeat in our lives and other things that are great examples that we should follow in our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you for these things, and we ask that you would just Continue to minister to our hearts all the things that you want to continue to do, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, because we're reminded that even though Samson, as we'll see here, just goes off course, Father, your love for him didn't diminish. Your plans for him were so much greater, I believe, than he ever accomplished, but yet, Lord, you didn't give up on him, and you won't give up on us. And we thank you for those promises, Father. Bless them to our hearts, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you guys. We'll finish it up next time.